Jimmy, Jimmy Crane, Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Jimmy Crane's an improv nerd. Jimmy Crane's a nerd. Oh, Jimmy. We have got a great episode for you today. It is a very special episode because it's actually our first compilation episode. And when I mean compilation episode, we took a theme, which I'll just I'll tell you in a second what our theme is, and we took some clips and we put them together. And I think you're really going to find this to be very informative, very educational, and very fun. And it really came out of, you know, I've been uh, touring around the country doing live podcasts, Improv Nerd, and also teaching. And I've met a lot of people over the last couple of years who've started their own improv theater. And I've always found it so fascinating how much work that goes involved. And there's always a story, and everyone has a different philosophy, and uh, there's always a little drama involved. So in this episode, you're going to hear from people like Mick Napier, the founder of the Annoyance Theater, Ali Farinakian of New York City's Pitt, the People's Improv Theater, Tim Marks of the Kansas City Improv Company, Diana Delaney of Comedy Sports Houston. And they're going to tell you about their philosophies, what it's like to, to run an improv theater in terms of the business, in terms of managing the, you know, the, the players. Uh, so if you're thinking about running an improv theater or you're in a group that, that works independently, you are really going to enjoy this episode. Here it is, our compilation episode about running an improv theater. Enjoy. Many successful comedy theater owners actually started off as performers. One example of this is Ali Farinakian. He is the owner and founder of the People's Improv Theater in New York City. Now, before starting his theater, Ali was a member of the Upright Citizens Brigade. Ali discussed how he came to the idea of starting the pit and the emotional difficulties of leaving the UCB. Then you have to make a hard decision. Yeah. You break away from the UCB. Yeah. I don't know if it was a hard decision. It seemed like it was time to put out a shingle. You know, if I look back on it, you know, it's like in olden times. I had apprenticed for at that point maybe over a decade. I'd apprenticed with Improv Olympic with Sharna and Dell. I'd apprenticed at the Second City with Kelly and Andrew and all the you know instructors there. And then with UCB, again, it was an apprenticeship. And it just felt like it was time. And again, it was post 9-11, which is very hard for people, I think, who weren't in New York or even in New York, I don't know. There was a sense of like, what now? What am I gonna do with my skill set and my you know things that I can offer? And it just felt like it was time to start something. Was it hard to, um, because it, it started kind of a riff, would you say? Yeah, I mean. I, was it hard in terms of, they're, they're my friends, we all came from Chicago, and I'm starting this thing, and we were not talking. Was that hard? You yeah, know? absolutely. I mean, look, I'm not that good at confrontation to begin with. And it was one of those things that just kept building up. And I don't want to necessarily go in. There's no real reason to go into the details of how it actually happened right now. But they were my best friends, you know. But I also felt like I'd done everything I could there. I remember my last night doing ASCAT. They didn't know, but I knew it was my last night. There was 13 people on stage. The audience was packed. And I was, like, looking around, enjoying it, going, you don't need me anymore. And I remember, like... Um, a sense of just, I, you know, with the fraternity at Carolina, I was the house manager. 
So I was in charge of one of my positions, in charge of how the place looked, the landscaping, you know, building shelves, keeping everything, you know, fixed. And I was the house manager for probably two years. I was also the treasurer of that fraternity and assistant treasurer. So I also, I cared, I, I wanted to have a say in how the place looked. And I knew I wouldn't have a say in how the place looked in terms of being able to, if I want to do hardwood floors or paint or do any kind of art and I don't know, it just felt like I wanted to do more teaching, I wanted to do more performing, and it, it, it felt like it was time. And I think the only thing that kept it from not happening earlier in New York is that New York real estate is so onerous. It's a challenging proposition to open up a space in New York, or someone else would have already done it. Would you say, and this is total dime store psychology on my part, <laughs> that Ali Furanakian is a leader, he likes to be his own man, and he was not going to get that opportunity at UCB. You know, honestly, it was never my dream to have a theater, to be a leader. I always saw myself more as a general in someone else's army. I mean, you know, I, I, you know, if anybody I, you know, connected with, I connected probably with Grant, U.S. Grant, Ulysses S. Grant, more than I did with Lincoln. You know, and so there was. I didn't want, and I also like the. <laughs> I like the movie Sex, Lies, and Videotape, and I like the idea of James Spader. He said, I have one key, that's all I want. And then when he got that second key for his car key and the apartment key, he was like, ugh. And now I've got, like, you know, a whole keychain around my belt with a bunch <laughs> of keys on it. So, again, it was not something that was my dream, you know, and I don't know if I was a natural leader. Um, throughout my life, it has been put on me. And when it has, it's like, okay, I guess I'm going to be the captain of the tennis team because these guys elect you as the captain. Have you ever, like, tried to reach out to those guys? You know, years later when I was, I was doing Homebody Cobble at the Steppenwolf, and, I, and the, the first act was Amy Morton doing a phenomenal, wonderful 50-minute monologue. And then after that, I would go and do an autopsy of the woman you've just seen. This is her autopsy. After that first scene, I was done. So... After that, I had to find things to do so I wouldn't go crazy. So I wrote letters to the four of them, and I sent it out. For me, it was like it was my way of like I tried to reach out in different ways, and to me, it was like I need to find some closure for myself and to say here's where where I could have done better, and here are the reasons I chose to do it. But it was individual letters to the four of them because you know how, how could you have done better? Do you think? Well, I could have probably told them that it was happening before it happened. I could have been the one to tell them that it was happening. But again, there was a piece of me that just wanted to maintain the age of innocence as long as I could. Was it innocence or was it some fear? There was fear, yeah. I didn't want to have a confrontation. Um, and it was just something that it felt like it had to happen and I just kind of avoided it. And I avoided the, the difficult conversation with them. And you know, I ended up you know, talking to a few of them afterwards. Uh, but again, it was like, 12 plus years ago, so I, you know, when I, I go back to those memories, I have to think about it a little bit. While many theaters are formed through a long-lasting vision, some occur through synchronicity. This clip, Comedy Sports Houston owner Diana Delaney discusses how her idea of starting a theater came about and why she chose Houston. Okay. Right. And then you go to Dick uh, Chudnow, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And you say, Dick, I've got this great marketing plan. Right, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and and for comedy sports, I can really help you out. And what does Dick tell you? He says he can't afford to hire me, but he would love for me to go open my own club. And, and when he said that, what, what what were you thinking? 
I thought that was a fantastic idea. <laughs> and did you have any idea where you're going to open it up? No. Um, I loved Milwaukee. I really did. What did you love about that town? I loved it because it's small, but it has big city amenities. It has a ballet. It has a symphony. It has theater. It's close to Chicago if you really need to get that big city fix. But it's really a small town, and Midwesterners are almost as nice as Texans. <laughs> so he, he throws out this, this proposal of, like, I want you to open up a franchise, a comedy mm-hmm. sports franchise. How do you decide on Houston? I decided on Houston because I, I determined that I would come back to Texas. So I didn't have anywhere else. I'd lived in New York. I'd lived in the St. Louis area. I also wanted to go, so I wanted to come back to Texas, and I wanted to go somewhere that had not had a comedy sports before. Why? Because I wanted to make it my own. Um, In fact, there had been a guy up in Milwaukee who took comedy sports to Dallas, and um, he, it's, it's not really a franchise, it's more of a license agreement, so you pay a royalty for the show. And um, he had stopped paying the royalty but continued to do the show. And so um, through legal brouhaha, they got him to change the name of the show. Well, Dick really wanted me to go down to Dallas and, and do a successful comedy sports there. I wasn't interested in doing that. I didn't want a, a battle between anybody. Um, I wasn't interested in San Antonio. Um, and Austin had a comedy sports at this time. This was in 1990. And so Houston was a big city that didn't had never had comedy sports. So that was one main reason. The other main reason was naively, I thought, you know, Milwaukee, small market, really successful business. Houston, huge market, phenomenal, unbelievable <laughs> money, you know, and fame. Not so much, Jimmy. Oh. <laughs> I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah. So you come here. Yes. All right. And you've got the comedy sports franchise. Yes. And uh, how does the first couple of years go? First couple of years were actually fun. Once we, like, once I held the audition, so I moved here and I didn't know anybody, and I'm sitting in my one-bedroom apartment climbing the walls because I'm used to having a very, very social life in Milwaukee. Um, it's almost like you're a pioneer in a lot of ways, isn't it? Well, I'll take that. Thank okay. you. But I mean, in terms of you have this great support system in Milwaukee where it's very successful. Yeah. And now it's, it's missionary work. Now we want you to go out <laughs> to the fields alone. Right. It started from scratch. Right. Right. So you're in your apartment. You're alone. Right. Probably a little depressed if you were me. Right. Sure. Okay. Sure. Um, looking for a part-time job because I knew I needed regular income coming in, but I also knew that I needed daytime business hours for my business of comedy sports. And um, uh, set up meetings with um, the theater departments at all the universities here to tell them about what I was doing and uh, tell them about the audition date. And so I moved here over the July uh, 4th weekend and I held my first audition the end of August. And had to hold another audition because didn't find enough of what I thought would be strong improvisers. So held another audition in September 15th. And then at that time, so there were about 15 of us. um, And we practiced twice a week. 
and um, in the meantime, I was looking for a venue for the performances. And where did you find that venue? At a little restaurant in Montrose, um, which is, um, or back then anyway, was sort of the artist neighborhood. And um, uh, this restaurant had a little back room that sat 50 with a little stage and a grand piano on it. And that's where we started on Thursday nights. So Thursday night, and you're starting to get a house, crowds coming, starting to build a following? Yeah, I mean, mainly family and friends at the beginning, of course. Mm-hmm. But comedy sports has always enjoyed um, loyal fans. So if they see, if we can get somebody to see the show, typically they will return and typically they will bring others with them. Another venue that came through Synchronicity is Chicago's Upstairs Gallery. Since closed last year, we spoke to owners Caitlin Steppen and Alex Honnett as they gave us the details of their theater's origin. Okay. The way it all sort of fits together is very seamless. Very okay. cool. <laughs> uh, so we're, we're in this front room. It's, it's great. We're having a blast. The girls who are renting it uh, as an uh, art space decide they don't want to do it anymore. And so I and a friend named Eric Siegel, who lives in L.A. now, were like, okay, well, maybe we'll just rent it. So we talked to the guy who was running the music studio. We're like, can we rent the front room? He said, sure. It was 400 bucks a month. And we paid for like half the utilities or something like that. So, uh, and then we just held rehearsals and shows whenever they weren't recording, uh, you know, like French post-hardcore music or whatever was getting recorded that week. Um, and it was going really, really well. Um, and then right around the time that... Uh, Walt and I didn't make teams was when um, they came to us and said, uh, we're not going to uh, run the music studio anymore. And we were kind of like, well, maybe we should take over the whole floor. So we talked to the landlord. He said, sure. So it kind of was this happy coincidence. And what was, what was the rent when you took it over? Um, I think the rent was probably around like $2,000, somewhere in that range. And are you panicked? Like how we're going to pay for this? Oh, yeah, definitely. Okay. Yeah, definitely. And then, then what happens? How does it start to to uh, you guys all come together and, and start to make this work? So at some point, Eric had sort of bowed out because he was too busy, and Walt came on board, um, and me and him are the ones on the lease. And then right when we took it over, we asked Caitlin to sort of come in and run the business side of things and like help us sort of manage everything. Um, so that's sort of how the, the trio uh, was formed. Um, and then from there, it was just kind of like a very gradual process of like building out exactly how this works. You know what I mean? So No, I don't. Did you guys have a business plan? No. I would not say No, we, we were we didn't know a anything. bunch of irresponsible yeah. I mean we're still irresponsible kids and um <laughs> twenty eight year old kids. And like we were like this thing's working as it is and we kinda crunched numbers and we were like, look if we can't make rent from like charging people to rent it for rehearsals or shows, like because we have normal day jobs, we could scrape together enough cash to pay for the rent. And then it happened to catch momentum that we were, I mean, we're breaking even. We're not making mass sums of money from this place. Uh, So it was just kind of a snowball effect. Like, can we do this? I don't know. Let's see. It's like, oh, yeah, we can. Oh, Oh, wow. Look at this. So you've never had to reach into your pocket to cover the rent. No. Which is amazing. Yeah. I think that's right. And when did it when you took it over, when did it, and why do you, why, why do you think it had that snowball effect? Why do you think it was so popular? Um, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's been a, a question on my mind for a long time as well. It, uh, it felt like 
there was this weird congruence of events where something like Chicago, there wasn't enough like spots at theaters for people who wanted to do things, and there were also people at theaters who were kind of feeling like they couldn't get spots at the theaters to do their own things that they wanted to do. And so there was just this thing where they started putting up, people started putting stuff up here, and uh, some of it was just people figuring it out, and some of it was really good, funny stuff that you, know, you couldn't see other places. And that just, we got some buzz, and we never really looked back. You know? Did you have some 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 crap on stage when you first started? How how did you weed out that process? I'd say we still have. I mean, like, crap is yeah. crap is pretty subject, subjective because like a, a, a team's first couple improv shows are very rarely good. You know what I mean? Like they're 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 figuring it out. They are understanding what it is to be on stage in front of an audience and like how to play with each other. Yeah. Um and. Uh, you know, it's better to do that somewhere that's not a bar. You know what I mean? So why why is that better than a bar? Um, because it feels safer, and you are more confident, and you feel more respected, and like people are more likely to come out to something. I think if it's not at a bar, like this, this space just gave things like a feeling of legitimacy that I think other places didn't have necessarily. Not to knock those places, I think they're great, but like that's why I think it resonated. Opening a theater isn't always easy. Mick Napier, the owner and founder of Chicago's Annoyance Theater, discusses how he came about opening a theater and how founding it led him to some financial drama. The Annoyance, how you started the Annoyance Theater almost 25 years ago. I don't think, as as I was researching this, I don't think a lot of people understand what it was like almost 25 years ago. That there wasn't this, this so many opportunities to perform and stuff like that. What what was the inspiration of like I gotta do this I gotta do this kind of theater? I th- I think I think you just said it is that I need to have a place where I can do this kind of theater where I didn't feel like I could do it elsewhere I didn't feel like it would be welcome elsewhere. And at the time it was basically Second City and I O right? It was yeah. it was Second City and I O and the annoyance isn't a reaction to Second City or I O it's just the desire to create a kind of theater that really wasn't available at Second City mm-hmm. and I O. Uh, I wasn't so interested in creating a theater that did sketch comedy, right. or nor was I interested in creating a theater that was solely based in improvisation, mm-hmm. like I.O. You know, that's, right. how it, that's how it started, pretty much. So I wanted to do weird theater and weird narrative theater that had a beginning, middle, and end, musicals, etc. So that's where that came from. But I also never sat down and said, I would like to start a theater. It all kind of just happened. We did a show... And we enjoyed that. We did another show. We enjoyed that. And we thought, hey, let's get a space to do more of these shows that we're doing. And that became the annoyance then. And and really, because I was a part of it it, it, when we were at Broadway and Belmont. And it was very quickly, success happened. Very, very quickly. With COVID Prison Slugs, the Real Life Brady Bunch. It was crazy. Remember, like, you never know who was going to... Tom Hanks came in one yeah. time to see the Brady Bunch. You had representation from... I don't know. We yeah. got Everybody was being interviewed on, in national publications. Mm-hmm. How do you look back at those days? I look back on it with fondness. I had a great time. There were some really wonderful people back then. Um, I, I had a lot, a lot of fun personally. I look back on it with a lot of kind of scariness too because... During all that time, I personally was in financial hell during that time. Really? Oh my lord! Yeah, the annoyance on on Broadway. We were we were financially really really in trouble. Um, and I don't even know if you know this, but I went through after the annoyance on Broadway. I went through a ten year journey 
of it, it was pretty much a nightmare I'll tell you briefly uh, there was a gentleman that owned the building mm-hmm. and he had his he owned a lot of real estate in Chicago and he had he owned so much real estate that he had his own in-house law firm mm-hmm. that handled all of his real estate so I entered naively I entered this lease that we couldn't handle and it was a triple net lease. What that means is that you have to pay property taxes if you own the building. Very common kind of lease in Chicago, if not anywhere, everywhere in the United States, for a commercial property. Well, we do, it just got out of hand. It's ironic because what happens is you, you improve a neighborhood with a building that you rent, and as you improve the neighborhood, well, you're actually punished because your property taxes go up as a result of improving the area that you're in. So that happened. And it just escalated, and I wanted out, and I couldn't get out. So, long story short, sorry, already fucked that up. Um, I, the only way, recourse I had was to declare bankruptcy, and I went through a 10-year journey of the company, uh, the real estate company, suing me, having my bankruptcy annulled, having it turned around, um, then suing me again and again and again. Ten years later, I'm sued for $250,000, and I lose. And that was, so that's the annoyance on Broadway as well. The man who owned the building died. He died. So for six years, I was being sued by a dead man. His law firm, his law firm still operated. So what really was going on was that every time the law firm came after me, they could bill that to this company so that they would pursue me would would have them make money and they did so here, here you are and you're you're directing at second city and money's just going to legal fees no not necessarily like i, I just avoided a lot of it but <laughs> <laughs> how did that work out it worked out fine i mean i never paid a cent and that's long since passed but i I only say as I look back on that as a very financially devastating time in my life as well. Each theater owner has their own unique philosophy in regards to running their theaters. Here, Ali Faranakian talks about his philosophy when it comes to running the People's Improv Theater. Tell me what the philosophy of the pit is. Well, I mean, hopefully, I mean, a big part of what we do is community. You know, for me, I've gone from fraternity to fraternity my entire life whether it was the tennis team or the dorm I lived in or the fraternity I was in in Carolina or Improv Olympic or Second City or SNL or UCB or the pit. It's a fraternity, you know, of sorts where, um, you know, again, the goal is what happens on these stages. You know, and I could say a sentence like, the goal is to make improvised material look like it's scripted and scripted material look like it's improvised. I could say, you know, something like we are a theater that focuses on comedic uh, improvisational theater you know, but it's a place, you know, like all of them, which are shells for people to have friends, have a community, work on their craft, you know, do as much or as little as they want to further their cause uh, as a human being and an artist, you know. So I, I don't, you know, hopefully it's a place with heart. Hopefully it's a place where people like each other, you know, and they get along and we try to hopefully keep the drama to a minimum and the an a-hole quotient to the very minimum. Diana Delaney in the Comedy Sports Philosophy is on working clean and running a family-friendly theater. Here she talks to us about why it is so important for her performers to work that way. And what is that philosophy of working clean with comedy sports? I mean, why do we do it? Yes. Um, I think it was just, I think it was Dick's 
uh, vision that it would be comedy for everyone. He didn't want to be, um, he didn't want to exclude anybody from being able to come in and see a show that was good and funny. And do you think there, in terms of audiences, there's a, a big advantage to that? And in terms of, we've talked about, there is an advantage. Okay, because you can get them. But in terms of perform, performers, is there an advantage to work clean? What do you tell people that, that ask you that? Well, I think that it raises the bar. I think that, um, uh, I think clean comedy gets a bad rap a lot of times because people don't think it's going to be funny because they think you have to be a little bit dirty at least to get a laugh. Um, so I think that we have to, I don't, I wouldn't say we work harder, but, um, I don't know, maybe we have to, to be more well-rounded than somebody that can rely on a expletive to get a laugh. What to charge for your improv show is always a tough decision to make. We sat down with the upstairs gallery owners, Caitlin Steppen and Alex Honnett, who talked to us about their philosophy behind their donation-only policy. Your philosophy is not to charge for shows, but to get donations. What was behind that? Um, I think because we wanted it to be a space that people wanted to be at and wanted to feel like there wasn't a reason for them to not come. Um, it's funny because I'm actually doing at my day job. I'm also producing an improv show, which is a weird colliding of worlds. But everybody's like, no, we got to charge $5 at the door. And I'm like, I don't think that that's a thing because there is someone out there who is going to say, oh, I, I'm not going to go. They're charging $5. And I don't think that that should be a reason. I think if someone wants to see a show, they should see a show and they should put the price tag on it, whatever they want. There are plenty of places in this city that are charging for shows and the stuff that's going up here, it might not always be the best thing you're seeing, but if it's what you love and it's something you want to contribute to, then you should be able to contribute Let to me it. play devil's advocate. Sure. If, we're, if you're not charging for something, how are people going to see the value of it? Especially in improvisation, which I feel like we totally always undersell and undervalue. How are you going to see the value of it? The audience. Um, they get to put whatever value they want on it. I don't think that a dollar sign is necessarily the value that needs to come from it. I think the experience of being in this room is, is value enough. Tim Marks runs the Kansas City Improv Company, and he heads up the Kansas City Improv Festival. He discusses with us why it is so important for his performers to be likable. You also talked about how important it is to be likable on stage. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, Can you explain that? Sure. Um, I think that's something that I, I learned from reading about Second City shows. You know, at the at the opening of the of the show, I want the audience to like us on stage, like the performers, before they see what we can do in character. Um, uh, so I think that's... And how do you achieve that? Because people say that. It's like it's very important to be likable. But how do you teach somebody that? Or, or how, what is your process about being likable? What's your strategy? I think it's largely a matter of the style of hosting the show, of addressing the audience, welcoming them, and, and speaking to... Uh, you know, I, my philosophy is that we put on improv shows for the audience, not just for the performer's fun. And I think that's important to remember. And you're, what you want to do is impress the people who are at an improv show for the first time, not, not the people who come every week because they love you already, but make it welcoming 
so that you can grow your audience. So is there something that go, when you say likable, is there something, is, is there is something that goes on, in a message that goes in your, your brain, or uh, is it more energy, is it a smile, what is it? I what think is that thing to be likable? I think the key might be to be, is the empathy that you have for the audience, to, to be able to put yourself in their position. We have a lot of people who come into our theater and they go right to the back row or the back section and sit down and because they're afraid. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know if it's going to be like a stand-up show where the comedian makes fun of the people in the front row and talks about their shirt or whatever and, and, has, and the comedy is at the expense of, of someone else. Um, because improv should not be that way, in my opinion. Um, so so it's, take it's, a look at our audience now. And how would you approach this? Nice Is shirt. You... <laughs> okay, how would you <laughs> If that's likable, I've been doing it my whole life. Um, I don't need any work on this. How would you approach this? Um, well, you, when you greet people, it's, it's, it's smile, and it's eye contact, it's openness, it's the physicality, it's... Um, you know, thank you for coming. I hope that um, that you're having a good time. I hope that you're comfortable. That that type of energy. Not that you're going to say all of those words, but um, that's the attitude, so that they're comfortable and relaxed in in their seats, and they they and they know that you're professional, and they're that okay. This is going to be good. This is not just people. Now that works for you if you're hosting it. But right. So, so you come out and you host it, and you're likable. Now you're bringing eight people on stage. Are they thinking they've got to be likable too? Or, or have you given them their permission not to be likable or do what they want because you're likable? I, I, think if, I think the latter. I think if the audience is comfortable, and I like to host and have the, the cast standing behind me as themselves so that the audience can kind of get a look at everyone as a human being before they see them as a person. Because if they're standing there like a normal human being and kind of being pleasant and smiling, then in the first scene, if they have to play the evil stepmother or the bully from the grade school, then people know, oh, that's not, that guy's not a dick. He's the nice guy, but now he's playing a dick really well. So I think that there's a little bit of that to it. Another factor of owning your own theater is how effectively you manage your actors. Diana Delaney provides some great insights on how to go about this and why personal hygiene is so important. I'm sure when you, you, they come into the, the, your first level class, they're using four-letter words. They're right. subject matter that's not appropriate for comedy sports. How do you right. how do you do it without beat it out of them, Jimmy? With a stick? Yes. Okay. Okay. Great. That's what I've heard. I'm just just confirming the rumor that I hear. If there's a comedy sports uh, stick that you actually beat people. With. I, I, I see, I'm going to say yes. Okay. Great. Um, but you know, what do you what do you do? What do you do? to that person because I'm sure you've had people that come in and think that that's what it's all about right so you know you give them notes um, and they either find a way to change or they find their way out of the troop to do that to be successful at that I think that you have to have some kind of part of you that is good if -hmm. that makes sense so because of that I believe comedy sports seems to attract the nicer people Nice people, I'll say. That's theory number one. That's theory number one. Theory number two. The second theory is, um, you know, when I look back on my career in comedy sports, we had some people throughout the the life of Houston that weren't that nice. 
And as a uh, new owner, I would try to work with them and, um, you know, mend fences and hurt feelings and all this kind of stuff. Now, if you're a problem, I just say, you know what, this isn't working. So we don't, I don't put up with it. What is a problem? A problem, what, 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 is a, a problem is a performer that thinks that they need to run every scene, that they are the funniest, they are the most talented, and the other people are just other jerseys on the field um, that really, you know, I, I know what is best for this scene, so let me do it. And you've had to fire those kind of people? Yeah. And what do you say to them? Just that it's not a good match. What do they say back? Well, I disagree, usually. They say I disagree. And <laughs> okay. I say, you know, it's purely subject, subjective on my part, but my subjectiveness is the only one that counts in this right. situation. What if they're like... like Tough love. But I'm sure you've seen really super talented people that are jerks. Absolutely. Are those the hard call? What are we or say? people that... Really talented people that can't make a call time. Why? Right. What's that about? I don't know. And you've had to talk to them about it. Yes. And what do they say to that? Oh, I know. I know. I'm sorry. Oh, I overslept. Oh, my alarm did go off. Oh. And then you have to. And then what do you do in that situation? Well, if they've done it repeatedly. Yeah, they're they're gone. You can't. They're undependable. Then is that the hardest part of being a producer? Of letting people go. Yeah. Absolutely. Yep. Mm-hmm. I'll tell you something that I used to think was really hard. You've got you know, tough in so, your Oh, I have, yeah. I have. I've had to tell probably half a dozen performers that they didn't smell good. <laughs> that stinks, literally. <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended. How, you, how, how do you do it well, diplomatically? I, I used to be very diplomatic and, you know, say, you know, gosh, I, you know, I hate to tell you this, but, you know, I've gotten some complaints, and you just, you know, you need to wash your clothes and, you know, wash yourself. Now I say, hey, you stink. If you, if you stink again, then you'll have to go elsewhere. And what do they, what do they say? Really? I stink? Oh, they're surprised? Honestly, yes. Oh, my God. Yes. I guess that's how I would react to it, too. You know, just deny it. Just, frankly, I- but here's the thing is, you pay your people, right? Uh-huh. How much do you pay for a show? Oh, very little. Well, if it was $5, it's more than, than most people make okay. in improv. It's twice that. It's $10. Okay, we got it here. That's good. So they're getting paid. Uh-huh. What do you think it is about the lack of professionalism? I don't know. I don't know. But uh, uh, some people just don't get it. Here, Tim Marks gives us his two cents on the topic with an example of what not to do. It's not easy running a company, you know, uh, an improv company and stuff like that. We talked a little about a year ago you had a little, there was a little drama in, in the company. Uh, yeah. Uh, do you want to tell us a little about that? Sure. Let's talk about the painful times. <laughs> I like listening to your podcast because you, when someone says, oh, yeah, I felt like a failure, you sometimes get excited. I You're do like, get excited. Like, oh, my gosh, that must have been terrible. Tell I, me about that. I do. I, I love it. I love it. It's love so it. funny. You, it, yes, I love it. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And I love it because 
people that listen to this podcast, the people that I have on as guests, like you and you know all the people that I've had on, they've reached some sort of success. And 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 I know I probably said this a million times on this podcast before. So if you're listening, just bear with me. Fast forward. Th- that yes, fast forward. Thank you. Uh, <laughs> it'll be another 20 seconds, and you go back to the interview. But the whole point of like, it's not easy. You, you know, and I wish when I started out, people would say like, okay, it's not going to be easy. You're going to have a lot of failure. You're going to have a lot of disappointment. Just hang in there. It's going to make you stronger. And that's why I think what you were going to, you were about to say, uh, share with us is, is really, is really important to anybody who's in a group or a theater. Because like I told you, I get a lot of people saying, I got a problem. What do I do with this? You know, because yeah. we're in a people business. Yeah, absolutely. And to get, you know, we have 22 people in our company and to get 22 artists of any type in a room to work well together and not have a lot of drama or screaming or fights or jealousy is really not easy. Um, I think in the improv community it's a lot easier than any other artistic community that I've heard of. Um, But nonetheless, um, I think this problem stemmed from the fact that it's really hard for improvisers to quit something, to quit a group, and it's hard for a group, on the other hand, to fire anyone. Um, Why do you think that is? I think because it's part of the culture that there are no mistakes. Whatever you do, I'm going to support you. We're in this together. Um, you know, say yes to everyone's ideas and support and make this work. So it's, it's kind of antithetical to say we shouldn't be working together anymore. You know, that's a denial. Work on that. Start over. Don't say no. <laughs> we're going to keep working together. Um, so uh, there was a situation where there were a couple people in our group who had kind of, we'd kind of grown apart in some ways. And maybe they should have um, departed earlier. And so, there, so then every little annoyance that either going either way toward them or, or back to me became bigger and bigger until I was, I, I was a little curt in an email and um, used a profane word when I should have just said, use that same sentence without that. And I regret that. And that blew up into an email chain back and forth with lots of witnesses in the CC line that was just ugly and unnecessary. Um, and I lost, um, a, uh, you know, I'm, I was not innocent in the, in the matter, um, but I lost a lot of sleep over, how, over these hard feelings and, and the, the words that were, that were said. Um, so those things happen over time, and, and I think that's, it's human nature. That what, what did you learn from that? I think that I should have been more in tune with what my people were thinking and feeling um, and delved in a little bit deeper when I talked with them individually and asked, you know, how are you, how are you doing? We had a meeting. I met with everyone one-on-one in, in December of that year or something and say, you know, what do you, what do you want from, what are you getting from improv? What do you want? How can I help you? How can we do things better? Um, and people said, fine, that's good, it's no problem. And then just a few months later, there were big problems. And so I, I think I wasn't attuned to what all my people were feeling. And so I think I had to do, I should do a better job of making sure that, that I'm approachable and people can say what's bothering them. While some theater owners have the benefit having their theaters located in a major city, many owners have chosen to open theaters in smaller markets. 
Through these decisions, owners have found ways to discover the benefits of being set in a smaller market. Jill Bernard, owner of Huge Theater, talked to us about why she believes Minneapolis is an ideal destination for improv comedy. And what do you do, this is the second year of Huge, uh-huh. what do you need to keep doing to foster the community to get bigger and also deeper? Well, when I say that I want us to be an improv hub, I want it to be the kind of a place where a person doesn't have to leave to have a full, rich improv. Is that realistic? Is that realistic? Because a lot of people, I've gone to the smaller markets, and a lot of people, their desire is to go to New York, L.A., and Chicago. How do you keep them here? And that will never end. There will always be some kind of a talent drain to other places. Uh, You keep them here by giving them continuous opportunities, chances to create their own shows, chances to teach their own style, and that's why we built HUGE, just to have a home for these things to happen uh, and to encourage people to to kind of incubate their work here and let it spread uh, and give them a, a chance to create things. Many theater owners in smaller cities also face losing great actors to larger markets. Tom Booker, owner of the Institution Theater, provides insight to this dilemma, as well as why his theater's hometown of Austin, Texas, is the place to be in terms of studying improv comedy. And, and what's weird, and I, and what this scene reminds me a lot of Chicago in the 80s, because it's a lot of very talented talented people. We're getting very, very focused and and figuring out what it is that we really love to do. And the great thing is there's no industry watching us. And so we get to we get to try things and not worry about failure. And we do have there is an audience here that would support it. Okay, so let me play the devil's advocate. Yes. How do you keep people here if there's no if there's no industry, if there's no opportunities? People people leave that is that is that is a problem that I I think the the that's you know the very ambitious people leave quickly, which is just one of those things. Um, but it, there's still a lot of talent here. And we just, what we would do is just really play to our strengths. You know, rather than trying to be someone else, we would be ourselves and, uh, and create things from that. that. And it, here, the great thing about not, not being an industry is you have a group of people here that do it because they love it. So uh, if we put something together, um, having fun with ourselves, that's the reward. And if something else comes of it, great. Um, uh, and as long as we keep doing that way, it, it'll be it'll be fine. You know, does that make sense? Yeah. 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 I think. Yeah. I mean, no, it's a great. There is so much talent in this town. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And lastly, Tim Marks explains how he too approaches losing actors to a larger market. You, the other issue that you guys deal with, and, and, and I see this in smaller markets, is people people join your theater, they get a lot of stage time, they get a lot of experience, and then they, they, they want to go to a bigger market. They want to go to Chicago or Los Angeles. How does that affect you? Um, it, it affects us negatively. Um, How do you handle it personally? At first it was a little bit hard, but you can't blame anyone. And I've now realized that when, you know, the people who move away to Chicago or LA are typically people who are pretty talented and, and good at it, right? And so you feel like, oh, we just lost all this talent. We're not going to be as good. And I've, I've realized when that happens, other people step up. Other people improve. Other people see that kind of vacuum and see that opportunity. And so we've lost 
so many really super talented people and then um, you know once people are in our group for a year some of them are, are amazing and our group is just as strong as it was before we lost that talent and there you have it another episode of improv nerd is in the can that was pretty good wasn't it for our first compilation episode i was really impressed i love what diana delaney said about uh you know, people, uh, players having to take baths and her actually having to say, hey, you know what, you, you, need, you need to bathe. Uh, I wish someone would have said that to me when I started out. Actually, I wish somebody would have said that uh, when I was in the third grade. Uh, anyways, uh, thank you so much. Uh, I want to thank uh, Andrew Smith for putting this episode together. He edited it and uh, just did a great job. And, of course, uh, my producer, Dan Schiffmacher, here in Chicago, who makes it sound so slick and so professional. You wouldn't be hearing my voice right now if it wasn't for Dan. Also, if you want more information about me, Jimmy Corain, and my award-winning improv classes, The Art of Slow Comedy, and to sign up... Uh, for our Improv Nerd blog, then go to my slick new website, which is jimmycorain.com. Also, as you know, we are taking over social media, and we are doing such a great job with this. It's, it's amazing how great of a job we're doing uh, with this. All you need to do is go to Facebook and like Improv Nerd, our fan page, because uh, it really helps with my low self-esteem. Then follow us uh, at Improv underscore Nerd uh, on Twitter, and then our YouTube channel, which is Improv Nerd Podcast. So you'll actually get to see little um, snippets or little clips from our actual uh, live performance, which is really cool and really, I think it's really helpful, too, to check that out. We're also lucky enough to be part of a podcast collective. It's called Feral Audio, and it's called feralaudio.com. Some of the most innovative and unique and hilarious podcasts out there are on feralaudio.com. I want to thank our sponsors today. That's the Hotel Lincoln here in Chicago. Just mention Improv Nerd, either online or when you call for a reservation, and you'll save 18%. That's 18%. Uh, you can't beat that, can you? And of course, I want to thank you for listening, because without you, this would just be a big waste of time. And until next time, remember, walk, don't run. Let's say uh, Seinfeld was on an island. Yeah. And he was blowing Boris Karloff. What would, it, what would that be like? <laughs> it might go something like this. Oh, Mr. Karloff, I loved you and Frankenstein. And I love giving you a blowjob. Why, Mr. Seinfeld, I'd love having you fuck.